there is a prayer cast prayer video for every country in the world. There are also prayer cast videos for many specific people groups in the world. There are also, there's a series of 80 prayer cast videos just for the world of Islam. It's called Love Muslims. All of them are free. All of them are accessible to you on your smartphone or your computer. All you have to do is put in prayercast, all one word, dot com. And you'll get a menu that'll show you all the different things that you can uh, look at. They're always a prayer. And almost always the prayer is prayed by a person from that country. And... Uh, you'll be interested to know that the people that use prayer casts the most are the Christians in China. These have all been translated into Mandarin. And the hits that we get, I say we because I'm on the board of the organization that makes these, the hits that we get are by far from Asia. Isn't that interesting? Should put us to shame <laughs> because they really believe in prayer. So if you're interested, just write down prayercast.com and then you can look it up with your phone or your, your computer. Well, here we are, our last session for this conference. And I want to thank you for your hospitality. I know if I move to Emporia, I'm coming here because of all the great food. Um, and your uh, leadership has graciously put me in a hotel uh, as I've gotten older, uh, it's a little harder for me to stay with families because I get up real early and I don't want to wake people up and all that kind of thing. So uh, they put me in a hotel and the towels, the bath towels in the bathroom are so thick that I know that when I leave tomorrow, I'm going to have a hard time closing my suitcase. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. All right, so... But I do want to thank you for, um, for having me. I hope that um, if I come back sometime, I can bring my wife, Annette. Uh, she is definitely the better half, and um, she's praying for us right now. This morning and this evening, we are asking and answering the question, is Jesus Christ really the only way of salvation for the whole world. Now, let's look at the categorical statement of Jesus that he makes about himself in John 14, verse 6. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now look at these words of Peter in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Every time I read this verse, the hair on the back of my neck stands up when I stop and realize who said it and who he said it to. 
This is Peter speaking, and he's speaking to the people who just took Jesus and crucified him and have the same authority and power to kill Peter. And yet he looks them right in the eye, and he says, neither is there salvation in any other. No other name. Buddha? No. Confucius? No. Muhammad? No. Sung Young Moon? No. Charles Taze Russell? No. Joseph Smith? No. Mary Baker Eddy? No. Only Jesus? Now look at these words of Jesus again. Speaking of himself, he says in John chapter 10, verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. John 14, no other way. Acts 4, no other name. John 10, no other door. (laughs) And this brings us back to the question, how can Jesus Christ claim to be the only way of salvation for the whole world? Because he does, he claims this. How can he do that? And the answer is for two reasons. Number one, because of who Jesus is, and number two, because of what Jesus did. Now, if Jesus can say he is the only way because of who he is, then we need to ask this first question, who is Jesus Christ? And the answer is, Jesus is God. Not just like God, not just the way to God, not just the greatest human being who ever lived, but God Almighty Himself. Now watch, when we say this, we are in no way denying or diminishing the reality and necessity of Christ's humanity. Jesus was fully man and fully God. He still is. As clearly articulated in the Nicene, Chalcedonian, and Athanasian creeds of the church. But as we look at Christ's astounding claim in John 14, 6, we must realize that he can say what he does because of who he is. Jesus is God, the second person of the Trinity, co-equal and co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit. Who is Jesus Christ? Jesus is God. And we saw this morning that the Bible teaches his eternal pre-existence, his virgin birth, his sinless life, his vicarious death, his bodily resurrection, his glorious ascension. Jesus healed the sick. He touched the lepers. He restored sight to the blind. He forgave sins. He raised the dead. The demons recognized his deity. His enemies recognized his deity. Many miracles from my Father have I shown you. For which of these are you killing me, Jesus said. And they said, for a miracle, we're not killing you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a mere man, claim to be God. And Jesus did claim to be God. 
He said, I and the Father are one. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Now, you're not going to believe this, but it's true. It's true. Amen. Amen. Before Abraham was born, everybody help me out. I am. Say it again. I am. Now, before Abraham was born. Now, uh, before we go on to the next slide, I want you to write down one more thing that won't be on the slides, but that is that not only did Jesus claim to be God, but Jesus received worship as God. Jesus received worship as God. And I want you to take your Bibles, if you have a Bible tonight, and look at Acts chapter 10. Now, if you hang around with this preacher very long, you will almost always end up in Acts chapter 10. And let me tell you why. Because Acts chapter 10 is the first biblical recording of an Italian coming to Jesus. And remember, my wife and I were missionaries in Italy for 13 years, all right? So look at Jack, Acts chapter 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. Doesn't that just warm your heart? <laughs> now, you know the story. This Gentile, Italian, Roman soldier uh, was a devout man. He prayed, he gave alms to the poor, and one day as he was praying, an angel appeared to him. You remember this? And said, your prayers have come up as an offering before God. Now, you need to go and send some of your servants down to the city of Joppa, where there's a man by the name of Peter. Get him to come up here to Caesarea, and he'll tell you what you need to know to be saved. Now, there's several accountings of, that, of this story in the New Testament. And it says clearly that the angel said to him, Peter will tell you what you need to know to be saved. Now, I'm just going to stop there for a minute because I'm a little bit concerned. I believe in dreams and visions. It's biblical. But I'm a little bit concerned about stories that I'm hearing in other parts of the world of Jesus appearing directly to people or an angel dir appearing directly to people and those people getting saved on the spot. I'm concerned about that. Now, if you study this passage clearly, carefully, you will notice that the angel did not tell Peter how to be saved because the angel couldn't do that. When I was a boy in our church, we used to sing this song, Holy, Holy, Holy is what the angels sing. And I expect to hear them make the courts of heaven ring. But when I sing redemption story, they shall fold their wings. For angels never knew the joy that my salvation brings. That's interesting, isn't it? The angel did not tell Peter the four spirit, uh, uh, Cornelius the four spiritual laws. He needed to hear the message of salvation from a redeemed sinner by the name of Peter. All right? So, anyway... Peter's down in Joppa while this is happening with Cornelius up in Caesarea, remember? Okay, so 
Peter's down in Joppa, and he's waiting for lunch to be prepared, so he does what we all do when we're waiting for lunch to be prepared. He's praying. That's what we all do, right, when you're waiting. You're, you're going to spend a little extra time in prayer. So he's up on the rooftop praying, and he has this vision, remember? And this sheet comes down from heaven. You can read it all in Acts chapter 10. And this sheet comes down, and on the sheet are all sorts of unclean animals. Now, it doesn't mean they were dirty. It means they were ceremonially unclean for Jewish people because Peter's Jewish. So there were probably pigs or snakes or, you know, whatever. And, and the Lord says to Peter, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Remember that? And Peter says, not so, Lord, because I've never eaten anything unclean. I'm a good Jew. And the Lord tells him that three times. And then he takes the sheep back up into heaven as if to say, hey, listen, Peter, if I can accept what's on this sheet, sheet you need to accept it too. And Peter's scratching his head like, what is God trying to tell me? And right then a knock comes on the door. And it's the servants of Cornelius that have come down to Joppa to get Peter. And we'll see that over in verse 23. Acts 10, 23. Then Peter invited the men, this is the servants of Cornelius, into the house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet, it says in the NIV, in reverence, other translations, to worship him. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said, I am only a man myself. Now, we were missionaries in Italy, and we lived, as it were, in the shadow of the Vatican. And I remember the first time I went to St. Peter's Basilica in Vatican City. Anybody here been there? All right, a few hands. All right. Um, 722 feet long, 448 feet high, the largest church building in the world even now. It is enormous. And I was so impressed with all the artwork and everything, and, and, and we're looking around, and, and about three-quarters of the way down the basilica, I saw a big crowd of people, and they were all looking at something, and I thought, I wonder what that is. And so I went down there, and there, about three-quarters of the way down, right in the center of the basilica, is a bronze statue of Peter, the first pope. By Roman Catholic tradition... Peter is the first pope, the first in the line of apostolic succession. And I wondered what everybody was doing, and as I got closer, I saw that there was a guard there, and around the statue there, was a, there were uh, poles with a cord, a big scarlet cord went all the way around, and so you couldn't go up to the statue until the guard would, one at a time, pull the cord off the poles and allow one person at a time to go up to the statue. And what people would do is they would kneel down and kiss the big toe on the right foot of the first pope. And as I looked at the statue, and by the way, I checked this out today online, and it's still true. As I looked at the statue, I noticed something very odd the big toe on the right foot of St. Peter is missing. And that's because the kisses of millions of people have worn it away. Now here in Acts chapter 10, we have the real guy, not a statue. 
and Cornelius falls down to worship him. And what does Peter say? Don't you dare do that. I am only a man like you. Worship God. All right, now hold on to that. Peter refused the worship of men. Now look with me at Acts chapter 14. Look at Acts chapter 14. In verse 8, in Lystra there sat a crippled man on his feet who was lame from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed and called out, stand up on your feet. At that the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, now stop reading and look up here. Don't, look, don't read anymore. I'm going to change the text. Don't look down. But... When the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, Paul jabbed Barnabas in the ribs with his elbow and said, Barnabas, do you see what's happening? They think we're God. Now, don't mess this up, pal. And let me do the speaking because I'm the chief speaker. (laughs) They're going to give us everything if we play this right. Is that what it says? No, let's look back at the text. All right. But when the apostles Barnabas and Saul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, Men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. We're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth. All right, now watch. Peter refused the worship of men. Paul and Barnabas refused the worship of men. Now, I want you to see one more thing in the very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22. Look at Revelation 22. By the way, as we're turning there, tell me who wrote the book of Revelation under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? John. All right. So John is writing, right? And he's getting these revelations from God that are brought to him by angels. Amazing, all right? And here we have Revelation chapter 22, verse 8. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and the prophets and of all those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Do you see where I'm going? Peter refused the worship of people. Paul and Barnabas refused the worship of people. The angel in Revelation refused the worship of people. Jesus Christ never, ever refused the worship of men and women. We don't have time tonight, but there are 12 distinct passages in the New Testament where people worship the Lord. For example, Thomas in the upper room. Or the disciples after Jesus calmed the storm and they fall down on the floorboards of the boat and they say, what manner of man is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? And we read that they worshipped him and when they did, Jesus didn't say, don't do that, stand up. He let them stay right where they were doing right what they were doing because they were recognizing him for exactly who he was. Jesus is God. Do you believe that? 
All right, let's go to the second question then. What did Jesus Christ do? And the answer is he died on Calvary's cross for the sins of the whole world. Now look at these words of John the Baptist in John chapter 1, verse 29. Look, the Lamb of God, speaking of Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look at what Isaiah prophesied about Jesus 700 years before Jesus came. In Isaiah 53, 6, he says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Now look at these words in 1 John, not the Gospel of John, but the first letter of John, chapter 2, verse 2. Speaking of Jesus, and you know that because if you go back to the verse before, it says, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. That's how it ends. And then it says, he, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is an amazing statement, quite apart from your or my personal view of the extent of Christ's atonement. Now, there are two questions that every thinking Christian needs to ask when contemplating what Jesus did when he died on the cross of Calvary. Two questions that every thinking Christian needs to ask when contemplating what Jesus did on the cross. The first question is this. How could one person die for all people? How could one person die for all people? Have you ever tried to explain to someone the vicarious, substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ? You say, uh, say that again. <laughs> Have you ever tried to explain to someone the substitutionary, vicarious sacrifice of Jesus Christ? Have you ever tried to explain that to a child? Have you ever tried to explain that to a biblically illiterate non-believer? The substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. What are we talking about? So, this is really important. So, when I try to explain that to people, I reach back into history. And I pull forward true stories of people who have been justly condemned to die for crimes that they have committed. And then right at the last minute before that person dies, an innocent person steps forward, offers to die in the place of the guilty person. The offer is accepted. The innocent person is executed and the guilty person goes free. That's happened more than once in human history. And if you want to know what some of those illustrations are, ask me and I'll tell you. And so I use stories like that to try to explain, you know, what Jesus did for us. But the problem is, every one of those true stories in human history, it's always one for one. <laughs> and in the case of Jesus, it's one for all. How can that be? And the answer is, it cannot be if Jesus Christ is not God. 
Now, when I moved to South Carolina uh, 20 years ago, uh, I thought it, it would be good for me to um, bone up and study up on the Civil War because um, you still see Confederate flags in a lot of places in South Carolina. So I thought, yeah, I need to study this more because I grew up in the North. And, and so I went to the library and I studied Civil War history and I discovered that during the Civil War, and by the way, more people died in the Civil War than in all the people, all the Americans who died in the First and Second World War put together. So it was a terrible and I discovered that during Civil War, they would have agreed-upon ceasefire days. And on ceasefire days, they would have prisoner-of-war exchange. And you can go to the library and find this out. And I discovered that during prisoner-of-war exchange, during the Civil War, one captain was worth 100 privates. Isn't that interesting? So uh, if you had 100... Union privates, captive, and the other side had one Confederate captain, captive, you could make an even swap, one for a hundred. Now, there's a more interesting illustration of this worth principle in God's Word in 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse uh, chap uh, chapter 15 to chapter 19. And actually, before I tell you that, let me just remind you of a couple recent things that we all have lived through. In the cor of course, a significant prisoner of war exchange took place in 2014 when the United States Army Sergeant Bo Bergdahl, held captive by the Afghani Taliban for five years, was released in exchange for five high-ranking Taliban commanders who were flown from the U.S. military prison in Guantanamo Bay to the country of Qatar. Now, quite apart from what you or I may think about the legitimacy of that exchange, it illustrates the worth principle that we're looking, uh, looking at and talking about in the exchange of Jesus' life for the sins of all humanity. And an even more graphic illustration of this worth principle took place in 2011 when Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu released 1,000 Palestinian prisoners in exchange for one Israeli soldier, Corporal Gilad Shalit, who had been kidnapped along the Gaza border by the Palestinian organization Hamas five years earlier in 2006. So this kind of thing is still going on, all right? Now, the illustration in 2 Samuel chapter 15 through 19 is very, very important. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, David is called the captain of Israel. And in chapters 15 to 19, Absalom, David's son, has rebelled against his own father, and a great battle is heating up in the forest of Ephraim. And David announces to his generals that he's going to lead the charge against his own son. And when he does, his generals all put up their hands and say, absolutely not. You're not going out there because even if they kill half of us, they won't be satisfied till they get you. And if they kill you, look what it says in 2 Samuel 18, 3. You are worth 10,000 of us. 
I find it extremely interesting that in the authorized translation of Scripture, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, Jesus is called the captain or the author of our salvation. Vincent's word studies, one of the primary authorities in the Greek language in the New Testament, Vincent's word studies says the best word is captain. Jesus is called the captain of our salvation. One for five in the case of Bo Bergdahl? No. One for a hundred in the case of the Civil War? No. One for a thousand in the case of Gilad Shalit? No. One for 10,000 in the case of David? No. One for all. How can that be? Answer, it cannot be if Jesus Christ is not God. But he, the one and only God, is worth more than all men and women, boys and girls, put together past, present, and future. And only he could pay the penalty for sin. How could one person die for all people? Because he is God. But there's a second question every thinking Christian needs to ask when we contemplate the cross and what Jesus did there, and that is this question. Did Jesus Christ pay the full penalty for sin? Did Jesus Christ pay the full penalty for sin? Now, pastor, I'm going to ask your congregation a question if they get it wrong, it means you have not been teaching them correctly from the Bible. So you are on the spot. Are you ready? All right. Class. The Bible clearly says in the Old Testament and the New Testament that the penalty or the wages for sin is what? Good job. Now, before we talk about that a little bit more, I want you to see an amazing verse in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26. Here's what it says, and it's speaking about the crucifixion of Christ. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This is talking about the crucifixion. And interestingly, it's talking about Jesus hanging on the cross. And interestingly, it tells us that that event happened at the end of the ages. Sun telea ton ionon, Greek, at the end of the ages. This is the only place this specific expression occurs in the Bible. But if you study Greek literature, you find this expression in many Greek books. And this expression is always used, watch, to describe the tallest peak of the tallest mountain in a range of mountains. That's what this expression is referring to. The tallest peak of the tallest mountain in a range of mountains. And the writer of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us that when Jesus died on the cross, it happened at the end of the ages, at the peak of the ages, at the high point of human history, what this verse is telling us is that the sacrifice of Christ on the cross is the most 
important event in human history. It's the high point. All history past looks forward to that event. All history future looks back to that event. That's why John Bowering in our traditional hymn books wrote these words. In the cross of Christ I glory, towering o'er the wrecks of time, all the light of sacred story gathers round its head sublime. And every time you and I here at 12th Avenue Baptist Church take the bread... And drink the cup. We are celebrating the most important event in human history. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. What is the penalty for sin? Death. Question. Did Jesus Christ pay the full penalty for sin? Now watch. When the Bible talks about death. As the penalty for sin, it always talks about death in three ways. And I want you to write these down. First of all, the Bible talks about physical death. What is physical death? Physical death is separation of the spirit from the body. James chapter 2, verse 26. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. And James uses a physical body and physical death to illustrate a spiritual truth. But physical death is separation of the spirit from the body. This month, 18 years ago, October 2003, my mother died. My mother was a godly woman. My father was a godly man. And between them, they led scores of people to personal faith in Jesus Christ. I always, as a boy, I always felt sorry for anybody who came to our front door selling something. Because <laughs> I knew what my parents would talk to them about. So, and my mom was 89, so um, my siblings and I didn't agree on the venue for the memorial service. I thought it should be smaller because most of the people she knew were already gone. And they thought it should be large because of all the people she had influenced in her life and they wanted to have room, you know, for... They won and we got a church that seated about 800 people and they proved me wrong. It was almost completely full. And we had a, a viewing, an open casket viewing before the service. And uh, the casket was right down in the front. The lid was up. And uh, we as a family, I have four siblings and our wives and all, you know, we're all standing in a line and people would file down and shake our hand, hugs and some tears. And, and then, you know, they would go by and they would pay their respects to my mother and then move on. And, and we were there for several hours, and you know, I, and so every now and then I just look over to make sure Mom was doing okay. <laughs> and then I would realize she wasn't there. She was dead. Her spirit had departed from her body. Physical death. There's a second way the Bible talks about death, and that is spiritual death. Physical death is separation of the spirit from the body. Spiritual death is separation of the spirit from God. 
Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. You who were dead in trespasses and sins, has he made alive in Christ. This is not talking about physical death. This is talking about spiritual death, separation of the spirit from God. We served on a missionary team in Italy, and one of the couples on our team announced with great joy that they were expecting their third child. And so we waited with them in joyous anticipation the nine months, and the day came, and and, and um, she and her husband off to the hospital, and we all waited for the phone call, and, and the phone rang, and we found out that they had a little boy, and he was stillborn. He was born dead. And that was a very sad day for our team. But did you realize that every single person sitting in this room right now was stillborn? Spiritually speaking, you were born dead. And you did not begin to live until by faith you reached out and received what Jesus Christ purchased for you. Spiritual death, separation of the spirit from God. But there's a third way that the Bible talks about death as the penalty for sin. Physical death, separation of the spirit from the body. Spiritual death, separation of the spirit from God. But there's a third way, and that is eternal death. What is eternal death? Eternal death is eternal separation of the body and the spirit from God forever. You say, Dr. Murray, where did he get that? Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him, God Almighty, who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Eternal death, what the book of Revelation calls the second death. Now, in terms of this full biblical definition of death, which is the penalty for sin, there are three questions we need to ask. And in asking and answering these three questions, we must keep in mind who Jesus is, fully God and fully man. So here's the first question. Did Jesus Christ die physically? Yes. In John chapter 19, we read that the soldiers came to break his legs. Now, you know why they did that. You remember why they did that. And, and remember, this was just before a holy day, so they wanted to make sure these guys died and they could take them down off the cross because it was a, a Jewish holy day the next day. So what would they do to hasten the death process? They would break their legs because on the cross they would use their legs to hold themselves up so that they can breathe. And when they broke their legs, they would collapse onto the ribcage and suffocate. But when the soldiers came to break Jesus' legs... They didn't have to. Why? Because he was already dead. Second question, did Jesus Christ die spiritually? Answer, yes. Matthew chapter 27, Mark chapter 15, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And three times in the prophetic description of Christ's death on the cross in Isaiah chapter 53, we're told that it was not only a physical, but a soul sacrifice. He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Third question, did Jesus Christ die eternally? 
And before you answer that question too quickly, remember that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. And to answer this question, we have to ask another question. And here's the question we have to ask to answer this question. How long did Jesus Christ hang on the cross? And there are two answers to this question, and both answers are equally accurate. The first answer is six hours, from 9 o'clock in the morning until 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And the second answer is eternally. You see, you say, how can that be? It cannot be if Jesus Christ is not God. But because Jesus is God and God is eternal, what he did in a moment of time-space history was an eternal act that paid the full penalty for sin. Now, if you're taking notes, write this down. The cross of Christ is a fact of time and of eternity. The cross of Christ is a fact of time and eternity. That's why the book of Revelation, chapter 13, verse 8, says that Jesus Christ is the lamb who was slain from before the foundation of the world. That, by the way, is the answer to the question, how were people saved in the Old Testament? And that's a study all in itself. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12. But when this priest, speaking of Jesus, had offered for all time, interesting Greek expression, the Nestle's translation says, in perpetuity. But when this priest had offered for all time, forever, one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Now, we have four children. And... Um, when Annette and I got married, we determined as a Christian couple that we would have as an indispensable, non-negotiable part of every day as a couple and as a family, a deliberate time of reading God's word together, discussing it, and praying together. And we've done that for 52 years. And when the kids came along, they became a part of it. Even when they were so little, they didn't know what was happening. And they're sitting in their high chair, that's fine. We got the Bible out, and we always did it at night, right after supper. That was the one time we found that we could, we could all be together. Uh, I don't want to get off on this, but I just want you to know, I am grieved with how many Christian families do not do that. I am grieved with how many Christian workers' families do not do that, including missionaries. And we would all be all around the table, mom, dad, four kids, and that's when the kids would ask us some of the hard questions. And that's really great. Daddy, what does it mean when it says an evil spirit from God came upon Saul? By the way, when your kids ask you tough questions like that, you know the best answer to say, if you don't know, you know the best answer to say, I don't know. Do you know why that's a good answer? Because it's honest. And your kids want honesty and integrity. Now, you shouldn't just say, I don't know. You should say, and honey, I'll try to find out. And I'll work on it. And I'll study it. And we'll come back to it. We'll talk about it some more. And I remember one night when one of our children asked me, Daddy, how long is forever? 
And it was scaring her. It was one of our daughters. It was scaring her. The idea, even the idea of going to heaven and living forever scared her because everything that we're oriented to starts and stops. It begins and ends. And, and this, like, never-ending just kind of scared her. And then I remember one night when one of our children said to me, Daddy, what is hell like? What is hell like? Um, And I've thought about that a lot, and I have come to the conclusion that the greatest description of hell in Scripture is to look carefully at what happened to Jesus on the cross. And imagine my surprise when I was reading J.I. Packer, and he said the same thing. I always knew he was smart. (laughs) I'm just kidding. But in J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, he has a chapter called The Heart of the Gospel. And in that chapter, he has a section called The The Destiny of Those Who Reject God. And he writes these words. Some then face an eternity of rejectedness. We cannot, of course, form any adequate notion of hell, and no doubt it is good for us that this is so. But perhaps the clearest notion of hell we can form is that derived from contemplating the cross. Look at the cross, therefore, and you will see what form God's judicial reaction to human sin will finally take. On the cross, Jesus lost all the good that he had before, all sense of his Father's presence and love, all sense of physical, mental, and spiritual well-being, all enjoyment of God and of created things, all ease and solace of friendship were taken from him, and in their place was nothing but loneliness, pain, a killing sense of human malice and callousness, and a horror of great spiritual darkness. The physical pain, though great, for crucifixion remains the greatest form of judicial execution that the world has ever known. The physical pain was yet only a small part of the story. Jesus' chief sufferings were mental and spiritual, and what was packed into less than 400 minutes was an eternity of agony. So we come back to the question. How could one person die for all people? And the answer is, because he is God. And we come back to the second question. How could Jesus Christ pay the full penalty for sin? And the answer is, because he is God. And this is what prompted the great Moravian missionary leader, Count Ludwig von Zinzendorf, to write these amazingly biblical and doctrinally accurate words. Look at these words on the screen. Lord, I believe we're sinners more than sand upon the ocean shore. Thou hast for all a ransom paid, for all a full atonement made, one for all, the full penalty for sin. And this is why the missionary apostle Paul wrote the words of Romans 10, 13. Romans 10, 13. Let's put the reference up. And I'm not going to put the verse because I think most of you are like me. You grew up knowing this verse. And I, when I was a boy, my parents taught me to memorize all sorts of scripture. And it was always in the King James Version because that's what we used then. And so I know this verse in the King James Version. I think some of you do too. And if I start to say it and you recognize, I want you to to enter in and say it out loud with me. Romans 10, 13 says this. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the 
shall be, okay, let's do it again. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Isn't that, don't you just love that verse? I love the whosoever. That means anybody, anywhere, who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, you know what? By the law of averages, nobody's talked to me about any of you. Honest. Nobody's talked to me about any of you. So I don't know most of you who are here tonight. But by the law of averages, not everybody here in this room is saved. I mean, when you stop and think about it, one-twelfth of Jesus' closest followers was not saved. So by the law of averages, not everybody here in this room is saved. And, and, and I don't know who you are, but you know who you are. And if you're here tonight, maybe you've been coming faithfully to this church for years, but you've never personally thanked Jesus for dying for you, never personally confessed that it was your sin that nailed him to that cross, never personally asked him to come into your life, wash away your sins, make you his child. Romans 10, 13 says, you can stop listening to me right now, and you can just start talking to him, and you can say, Lord, save me, and he will, right like that. How awesome is that? But Romans 10, 13 comes before Romans 10, 14. And Romans 10, 14 says, how then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how can they believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? This is why 12th Avenue Baptist Church has a missions conference. Because we know who Jesus is. We know he's the only way. We know there are millions that still need to hear about him. And we know people need to go to reach them. And we know the rest of us need to send them. And that brings me back to Sandy's story, part two. All right, what you've all been waiting for. You remember who Sandy is? The, the restaurant server? The one on the front porch who came with her friends and asked me if I thought Jesus was the only way and what would happen to people who die who've never heard of him. And when I gave her the answer, she said, that's not fair. Remember this? Okay. A week later, our big meeting in the tabernacle there in Des Plaines, Illinois, was over. We'd already had our evening snack. We were already in bed. The lights were out. It was midnight. Knock came on the front screen in porch. I got up, put on some clothes, went down, turned on the porch light, opened the screen door, and there was Sandy and four of her friends. They said, uh, can we come in? And I said, uh, sure. <laughs> and when they got into the screen porch, um, I saw all five of them were crying. I said, what's going on? And Sandy spoke for the group, and she said, well, normally when we finish working at the restaurant, we just all go home, but um, we made arrangements tonight with some guys that have a van, and they were going to come to the restaurant and pick us up, and then we were going to all go downtown Chicago and do the city at night and just do the nightclubs and the bars and just have fun, drive around, and so we were waiting for them to pick us up, and they never came, and they never came, and then the phone rang. We found that on their way to pick us up, they had a terrible accident, and the guy driving the van was killed. He's really a close friend of ours, and the guy in the front seat on the other side lost both of his legs, and we're just so upset, and we just don't know what to do, and we just need to talk to somebody. Can we talk to you? And I said, of course. 
And Sandy didn't ask me theoretical questions that night about millions of people who live in other places. She wanted to know about the guy that was driving the van. She said, where is he right now? And then she said, what if I had been in the van when the accident happened and I had been killed? Where would I be right now? And suddenly, life and death and heaven and hell and time and eternity were very real issues. And I had my Bible there that night, and I took it out, and I explained to those five young people the way of salvation. Have you ever done that, by the way? I, I didn't ask if you think it's important to do that. I've asked, have you ever done that? Have you ever done that with your neighbors, with the people that work where you work or where you go to school? Have you ever shared the gospel, the real message of the gospel, who Jesus is, what he did? Have you ever shared that with people? I want you to know I've shared it with hundreds of people in my life, and I've not kept track, but I think it's fair to say that the majority of people that I've talked to have not accepted it, and that always grieves my heart, but many have. And it's just awesome to see when God takes the message of the gospel as you present it and works it into people's hearts. And I just could see that God's Holy Spirit came down on that little screen porch and they were getting it. Now, the Bible calls that the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so I stopped and I said, you know what, guys, we don't need to talk anymore. I think we need to pray. And their eyes got real big because they'd never prayed before. And I said, don't worry about it. I'll help you. And I led them in a simple sentence-by-sentence -sentence prayer, confessing their sin. I said, only pray this if you want to. Confessing their sin, thanking Jesus that he had them in mind when he died on the cross, telling Jesus that it was their sin that nailed him there, thanking him that he took the sin that they and the penalty that they deserved, asking him to come into their life, wash them clean of their sins with his precious blood, make them his forever children. And three of the five prayed that prayer that night. And one of the three was Sandy. And Sandy got saved. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Now, Paul. I had a new... I had a new believer's Bible study that I was teaching every afternoon that month during the meetings for people that were coming to Christ in the meetings at night, and, and, and I told Sandy about it, and she said she'd like to come, and she didn't have a Bible, so I bought her a Bible, and she took it home the first night, read late into the night. She said, I can't believe the Bible's so awesome. I just thought it was such a dry book before, and now it just means so much. And she came to the study every day, and she just grew, and she grew, and then the month was over. The meetings were over. We were packing our vans, getting ready to drive back to South Carolina. Sandy came running up to the van I was packing. She said, can I talk to you for a minute? And I said, sure. She said, uh, you know, I've just graduated from high school, and I'm, uh, I've been accepted at university. And I said, yeah, I know. I think that's awesome. And she said, well, I've changed my mind. I'm not going to go to university. Oh? No, I'm going to go to a Bible school. Now, folks, uh, I didn't think she knew such an animal existed because I hadn't told her about a Bible school. That's step 10. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I had told her about steps one, two, and three, how to read your Bible, how to pray, how to overcome temptation, how to find a church. You know what I'm saying? And, and she's down here at step 10, a Bible school. I said, do you know what a Bible school is? Yes. I said, what do you want to go to a Bible school for? She said, I want to go to a Bible school to study God's word to prepare to be a missionary. I said, a missionary? Why do you want to be a missionary? And here's what she said. 
because I still don't think it's fair. <laughs> but then she said this, but she said, I've suddenly realized that it's not God who's unfair, it's us. She said, God has given us everything we need for salvation when he gave his own precious son, Jesus, to die on the cross for the sins of the whole world. And she said, God has given to us, his children, everything we need to take that message to the ends of the earth. And if there's anybody living anywhere in the world who still has never heard of Jesus, it's for one reason and one reason alone, and that's because we have failed to take that message to them. She's only two weeks old in the Lord. Sandy went to the New Tribes Bible Institute in the state of Wisconsin. She graduated three years later. Just last year, Sandy and her husband, Ron, retired from missionary service in a ministry that reached 10,000 teenagers with the gospel every year. How can Jesus Christ claim to be the only way of salvation for the whole world? Because of who he is and because of what he did, God dying on the cross, when you put that together and realize that only God himself could pay the penalty that a righteous God demands, could he say there is no other way? Now, some of you are going to be tempted to leave tonight and leave this weekend and say, wow, that was just great. I mean, I just never thought about some of those things, and I got some biblical you know, backing, and I wrote some verses down, and I think my theology's a little clearer, and, and I'm glad for all that. But that's not what I want you to go away thinking about. I want you to go away thinking about what, all, what about all those people, 2.6 billion, David Platt says probably 3 billion, and the reason why he says 3 billion, and I'm talking about the people that still live on the other side of the border of gospel awareness, they not only don't believe in Jesus, they don't know there's a Jesus to believe in, and there's no missionaries there to tell them. They have no cell phone access. They have no radio access. They have no shortwave access. You say, oh, you've got to be kidding. I'm not kidding. And if you want to know if that's true, why don't you go and see? I hope you don't leave here just saying, man, I just feel doctrinally a lot better equipped to answer these questions. I want you to leave here saying, no matter what age you are, by the way, I want you to leave here saying, what can I do as a goer or a sender to get the message, the only message of salvation to all those that are still waiting to hear about it for the first time? So let's pray together. And I'm going to just ask you a couple questions. And I didn't, uh, Pastor Garen, I didn't tell you I was going to do this. So I just, I, I'm saying that because I want you to know he didn't put me up to it. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you an opportunity to respond, all right? So let's just close our eyes for a minute. Think about what we've, what we've studied from God's Word. And I'm going to be very direct, and I'm, and I'm not going to drag it out, and I'm not going to try to make anybody cry, and we're not going to have music or anything like that. Um, I just want to ask several questions. The first question is this. If you're here in this room, and you know that the hand of God is on you for missionary service. You've already made that commitment. That would include the missionaries that are at the conference and anybody else that may be in that category, even though you're not an official missionary recognized at this conference. If you know God has called you to missionary service, I want you to stand up. Stand up. 
all the missionaries that are with us, anybody else that feels like you're in that category, just stand up. We'll just keep our heads bowed and our eyes closed. This is not a matter of curiosity. It's a matter of conviction. Now I want to ask secondly, if you're here tonight and this weekend or even in the weeks before, God's been speaking to you and saying, I want you to go. I want you to take the message of Jesus to those peoples of the world that are still waiting to hear about him. But you've never publicly acknowledged that. Would you just stand up right now and join these that are standing? I believe God's calling me to be a missionary and I want to go on record tonight by standing. Would you do that? Anybody else? We'll just take a minute. Now I'm going to ask a third question, and the third question is this. If you're here tonight, and you're saying, you know, honestly, I really can't say that I know God wants me to be a missionary, but I want to recommit my life to the Lord tonight, saying to him, if you want me to be a missionary, I will say yes. I will do anything you want me to do. I will go anywhere you want me to go. And I would like to go on record as making that fresh commitment tonight. If that's true of you, would you stand up and join these that are standing? Thank you. Anyone else? I want to pray, our great God, Lord of the nations, you created us, you redeemed us, you've been speaking to us this weekend from your holy word. I commit to you, all my brothers and sisters that have already committed to missionary service standing here tonight, I commit to you those who join them saying, I believe God wants me to go, and I pray that you will just lead, guide, and direct in each individual case. Help them to seek spiritual counsel and guidance. Help them to get the preparation they need to go. And then I pray for all those who stood saying, I really can't say honestly, I think God wants me to be a missionary, but I do want to say, Lord Jesus, anything, anytime, anywhere, I'm ready, I'll go wherever you want, I'll do whatever you want, here's my heart, here's my life, take me and use me. And if it means going to those that still are waiting to hear, I gladly will do so. I commit them to you as well and pray that you will just take that commitment and make clear to them what you want them to do and where you want them to go. Now let me ask everybody to just stand and join these that are standing. Everybody, let's just all stand up together. And pastor is going to close, but um, I, wanna, I just want to sing uh, one song that I think you all know. I, I'm not going to sing, but we'll all sing. Uh, one song that you all know that was part of the songs that we sang last night, the praise team. They sang a different tune 
but it's I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. If you know it, sing it with me. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. No turning, should no one join me, still I will follow. Should no one join me, still I will follow. Should no one join me, still I will follow. Should no one join me, still I will follow. No turning back. No turn, the, the world behind me, the cross before me, the world behind me, the cross before me, the world behind me, the cross before me, the world behind me, the cross before, no turning back, no turning back. No turning back.